Hey folks, glad you're here. Today you're going to meet Hector Mujica, who is the head of economic opportunity for google.org. And his territory is the Americas, plural. Stick around, it's going to be great fun. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Playful Podcast. I am so happy to see my friend Hector Mujica on the screen here today. If you're listening, you're going to hear us. If you're watching, you're going to watch, you're going to see us and hear us. And we're having the pleasure of getting to see each other and hear each other right now. So Hector, welcome to today's episode of the Playful Podcast. Christine, thanks for having me. Yes, so great. So Hector and I have, I didn't count it up, but I bet we've known each other five-ish years, something like that. Definitely, right. yeah. definitely pre-COVID. So it's one of those longer relationships. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we go back to BC times. That's right. Exactly. Awesome. <laughs> so everybody, Hector is the Director of Economic Opportunity for Google.org. And I'm going to have him explain more what that is. I think I was thinking, Hector, that you know, we all think we know what Google is, right? Because we use it every day, all of us. And it's an interesting kind of ubiquitous brand and name and term. But within that, imagine, we probably can't even imagine all the people doing all the different things. It'll be really fun to hear specifically about the part of Google, google.org, .org. I think most the folks listening to Playful Podcasts know that designation as an organization working in impact. And so for you to tell us about that. But before we do the usual kind of what do you do for a living stuff, I want to ask you, who's the most playful person you know? Ooh, great question. You know, fortunately, I think I have the great privilege and joy of being married to one of the most playful people I know. My wife, Tara, is incredibly playful. And I think I've really brought play and bring play and humor into a lot of the spaces that you occupy. And I think it took both someone that knew how to intake it and also dish it back out for us <laughs> to be able to have worked together for so many years. We, we've known each other since high school. So we go way, way back. And she definitely has a playful, inquisitive, curious spirit that I think keeps us animated and young and enthusiastic about the world. I love it. And I love that you're, that you are high school sweethearts, or at least you knew each other then. Maybe you weren't sweethearts until later, but that's so fun. And long story, up, complicated, complicated story, but yeah. Well, growing up with someone to, to a degree, right? Growing with and alongside someone can be quite playful, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I mean, you get to see, you get to observe people through many seasons of playfulness and life and you know life brings so many different challenges along the way that I think it's just been a joy to see how we adapt in our playfulness to meet those seasons yeah I love it one of the friends of the playful podcast is Dr. Stuart Brown who is the foremost play researcher and has been doing this work since 1968 I have told the story before on the podcast but it bears repeating there was a mass shooting at UT Austin in the 60s and that was fairly rare then which is sad to say how that's changed and yeah. it was so rare that that there was a a, a movement a real serious significant movement for like well how could this have happened what what happened and Dr. Brown um, was a young associate professor at the time in psychiatry, and he was tapped to be on what was called the Tower Commission to research how and why could something like this happen. And he ended up developing from the research that he did about that one perpetrator and then other folks that he interviewed who had been involved in violent crime, 
that play deficit was a big part wow. in, in their growing up. A play deficit contributed to some of the causality. So that's heavy stuff. Oh gosh, here I go. Let's see how I, let's see how I do on my transition. <laughs> but what do you? So, <laughs> how are you so going to bring us out of this one, Christine? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the the good news is is that what he then decided to do was to set about for the rest of his career studying how important play is and spreading the word. So he started mm-hmm. something called the National Institute for Play. And the reason I broadly bring it up, but specifically right now, is that he developed a theory that there's eight different play personalities. So mm-hmm. play is a general thing, and then there's different kinds of play. I really do feel like that got heavy really fast, but God bless that because it's important. Yeah. So let me tell you the let me tell you the eight types, and I want to see if you hear yourself and your wife in any of these. Okay, so the first one is Joker. Okay, kind of speaks for itself. The yeah. second one is kinesthete, which is rough and tumble physical play. The next one is explorer. Next is director, like the person that wants to put on the play, right? The person who organizes the big road trip. The next one is storyteller. And then the final three, I'll start with a C, competitor, collector, and creator. And I love, for example, on collector, he talks about not just collecting things, but maybe collecting experiences, someone that loves to travel, for example. So joker, kinesthete, explorer, director, storyteller, competitor, collector, creator. Do you see you and Tara in there? I see me and Tara all over, all over that, that spectrum. I don't know that I, that I gravitate to just, just one of those, but there's so many, so many aspects of play that I see both in a jokester. I think I bring joking and a sense of humor to a lot of the, the, the places and spaces that I occupy and the way that I present myself, the sense of curiosity and exploration also resonates the sense of the, the 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 director right i mean we we often are the ones that are the the ringleaders for big group trips or gatherings or holiday parties or just because gathering and um and also the the sentiment of a collector really resonates right mm. i think i've i've often thought of of my life journey as a, a collection of beautiful moments and like a collection mm. of, of joyous moments. And I think that one really, really hits close to home. I love it. Thanks for that reflection. He does say that most of us have many of these and depending on the situation, you know, may, one may most naturally facilitate, you know, what we're trying to accomplish or what's happening in a moment. So I'm going to, I'm going to take that into asking you about how you bring play into work. And so if you would talk a little bit about what is google.org and then a little bit about your role around economic opportunity. And I also noticed as I was looking over some of your resume that you spent some time in the crisis operations part of Google crisis response. And, And I imagine maybe kind of like a minute ago when I talked about heavy, hard things how do you how do we bring resilience and get our get it resilient by having some playfulness even when we're doing really critical and hard stuff? So love to hear if you would tell folks about Google.org, about your role, and then maybe a little example of how play is helpful to you in your role. Absolutely. Happy to. So Google.org, many folks that don't really know that Google has a philanthropic arm or an impact arm, but Google.org is inherently is Google's philanthropic arm, really tasked with their responsibility of helping to, to lead and steward innovation and social impact. So kind of that intersection of technology and impact for, for the company. And the, the space that I get to, to occupy and lead is really thinking about how this translates 
to economic opportunity and economic mobility across the Americas. So what are the innovator, the, the innovative organizations, the innovators that are out there leveraging technology to prepare communities for the reality of an emerging digital economy? Mm-hmm. And how do we ensure that we are building a digital economy that is inclusive and that is more equitable, that is more just, and that ultimately works for everyone, right? That it's not going to be leaving swaths of the population behind. That includes things like K-12 education and how are we exposing K-12 learners. So, you know, historical underserved communities, how are we exposing them to things like computer science so they can see themselves reflected in the type of jobs that, that they might not otherwise have exposure to? And how do we equip, with, equip them with the right tools so that they can explore fields in, in the digital economy or in tech? It also involves jobs and job seekers. How are we ensuring that people today across the Americas, across the world, that might be displaced, that might be looking for upper mobility? How are we ensuring that these individuals, especially individuals that come from non-traditional backgrounds as we understand them? You know, there's a lot of dimensions that we could be looking at that through. It could be a gender lens, it could be a racial lens, it could be a socioeconomic lens, it could be an educational lens. People that don't have a college degree historically have had significant impediments to upper mobility. So are we ensuring that these folks have the, the, the right skill sets and the right background supports to be able to move upwardly into, into the, the digital economy? Also thinking about it through the lens of small businesses. And Christine, this reminds me a lot of the work that we got to work on together through Hispanics and Philanthropy, right? We're thinking a lot about themes around access to capital and how do we ensure that historically underserved communities that have lacked access to capital have access to the right tools and the right pools of capital to start a new venture, to start a new small business, to grow, sustain a small business. And, you know, this this really, to me, is inherently very personal because mm-hmm. I've gotten, I've had the opportunity to see this in the lives, in my personal life, in the life of my family, the life of my wife's family and our peers how critical it can be to get access to the right education, the right jobs, and the right pools of capital to sustain growth and to ultimately move up and and, and sustain an economy, right? And build a backbone of an economy in in places like like the U.S. And this, of course, is very, very intertwined with other things that I do in my personal capacity, in my personal life. I'm deeply, deeply engaged, and I very much identify with with the Latino community. So I serve both nationally and locally in work that helps to bridge and connect Latin America, the U.S., the Latino community in the U.S. in a more profound and intentional way. That includes the way that you and I met, Christine, through Hispanic Philanthropy, where I serve on the board. I also serve on the board of the Hispanic Federation, of Aspen's Latino Society Program, a handful of organizations that are trying to advance dialogue and to advance the field and to really help to shape how we're thinking of creating an economy and access to an economy that's more equitable and more has more opportunity for for everyone including including Latinos and uh, this is kind of the la- the latest iteration of my career prior to this like you alluded to Christine I had the joy of helping to build out our crisis and humanitarian work at google.org and that, in a different way, was incredibly daunting, right? It, that mm-hmm. took me to, that I got to see the world 
through that role, got to work with some really, really inspiring organizations in very, very difficult moments. I was in Nepal in 2015 after mass casualty earthquake. I was in Europe in 2016 during the mass influx of Syrian refugees as Europe was trying to grapple with this this influx of, of, of people that were being displaced through, through war and, and other, other factors. And, you know, I think one thing that, that I think back, when I think back to that, that, that time in my career, one thing that I always remember is the resilience of the human spirit. That to me was something that was a connecting thread, whether it was in Nepal, whether it was in Greece, whether it was in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America during different, or in the U.S. itself, really the, the resilience and the commitment to thrive and to push forward is something that I think has always given me great hope and great, great enthusiasm and, and really kind of like folds nicely into, into my personal mission, right? Into like the, into the reason of the, the why behind why I do the work I do. And I recently heard someone, someone use this, this terminology that really resonated. And I, you know, I almost, almost have adopted this as a, as a life mantra, which is comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I just found it to be mm. such a powerful way to describe what, what we, what we can do through movements of justice, what we can do through movements of inclusion, of belonging, of equity, and what we can do through tools like philanthropy. Because at the end of the day, diversity, inclusion, intentionality, justice, and spaces and places of consequence is part of the formula for a more prosperous society, a more equitable society. And that's true across many segments of society, whether it be in business, in jobs, in venture, in philanthropy. Philanthropy being one of those spaces where communities of color get less than four, maybe five percent of of philanthropic resources. Same thing in venture. So again, no wonder that there's such a such yeah. great economic inequality in our society, such limited pathways for upper mobility, which really goes down to the why behind the work that I do, right. because of that belief that talent and human dignity is equally distributed but opportunity to really leverage that talent is not and i want to have the opportunity when i have the opportunity to work alongside some of the leading shakers and movers and and thought leaders to ensure that they have the resources and the platforms necessary to advance a world that is more more equitable and more just and maybe to quickly bring that all together to, to the concept and the theme of, of play is I think play offers us a window into taking something that's really heavy, something that's really complex and challenging and can be really taxing in us as individuals and helps us find some balance, find some, some equilibrium, right? And I think that's, that's incredibly, incredibly important. And for me, it's something that helps me keep my sights on, set on kind of the long-term objectives. Another kind of really beautiful quote that, that, I, that I recently heard that I really loved was, long-term planning cannot happen when we're rewarded for short-term gains. And mm, yeah. to me, that was also a big realization that I've actually recentered back into the theme of play, which is we 
if we are not keeping an eye on the long-term goal of the why we're doing the work we're doing, and we're just focused on the immediacy and the short-term gains and the short-term rat, rat race, we're going to burn out early totally. and our careers are going to ultimately suffer, suffer the consequences of not having achieved that equilibrium, that balance. And that's why I think play is such an essential, essential tool in giving us ourselves the, the agency, the freedom, the liberation to rest, to laugh, to find joy, and, and ultimately to recharge, ultimately yeah. to, you know, put, put, put a little bit more, more energy in our jetpack, a little bit more, more fuel in our jetpack so that we can really stay, stay focused on that, on those, on those long-term objectives and, and help really change the system in the ways that we're aiming to change it. I love all of that. A few things that came to mind, both from, you know, reading and work I've done and other conversations I've had the privilege to be in recently through the podcast, you know, the humanity of play, in fact, even just the mammalian, like mammals play, right? So the research yeah. shows, so Dr. Brown that I mentioned earlier does has done a lot of work with, with Jane Goodall. And so they like collaborated around play in animals and what can we learn about what's so instinctive and instructive about that. So there's there's the fact that I think about your work all over the world. You're coming from Venezuela. You're working and living in different parts of the U.S. I think I saw that you did some work in Japan. I know you do some work in Canada. Yep. And if, I, if I'm if i right, I think there's 35 countries or so in the Americas broadly. So you've got a big territory, so to speak. Big scope. And if we can't find... Very, and very, and very not, not just 35 countries, but very, 35 very diverse countries, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, socioeconomically, mm-hmm. racially, language, culture... There's just such a plethora, plethora of complexity. Don't you need things? Don't you need as many as you can common threads, right? Something that is that way. So could play be, is play one of those things that you can grab on going, there will be a chance. And people play differently. I mean, not just those eight personality types, but like, you know, play in different cultures can look different. So sensitivity around, you know, what might seem funny or fun to me may or may, may or not be fun or funny to someone else. But to believe that we both have a desire to be playful and creative. And and the, and the research shows, too, that that play is actually a really strategic thing to do if you're trying to get a group to solve a problem differently than they might have been solving it before. And as you and I working on many long-term problems, as as the guests of the podcast all do, if we, if you know, the whole thing about, you know, knocking your head against the wall, trying the same thing and expecting different results. And I'm hoping that that conversations around play that I'm getting to be a part of are both giving me a, a rest to a degree, kind of a, a little break, yeah. and also coming back better, smarter, more effective at the work that, you know, I'm so lucky that I get to do and that we're all doing. Absolutely. Together. Yeah. Have you, have you seen play vividly different in different countries and cultures? You know, I think that to, to some degree, the way that that play manifests itself i mean thinking about thinking back to those eight paradigms that you were sharing earlier i do think some of them probably get elevated more than others in different contexts but but what i will say that is probably a commonly shared trait of play is the outcome of play right and the outcome of play being centering in community centering in proximity centering in belonging finding kind of that that common denominator that makes people feel 
included. It makes people right. feel like they belong and they're part of a whole. And I think that outcome, whether it be competitive play or whether it be, you know, the director play or the creator play or the collective play, I think that the outcome is very much a connecting thread. Yeah, throughout. I, love, I love that. Just in the last few episodes, I was just thinking as you were speaking, we've had someone working in South Sudan, Syria, Costa Rica, Turkey, and then all over the U.S. And so I, I like that the outcome of play and isn't ultimately we're, we're seeking some some shared outcomes, even if how we get there is through a different certain path. I yeah. love it. I want to ask you a little bit. I think those of us, many people probably think giving away money is a lot of fun. And I wonder what we get right or wrong about that. Listen, it's a, it's a great question and definitely something that I think about often with the context in which I operate, my team operates at Google.org, I think can be incredibly rewarding and it can also be incredibly taxing. And I'll explain what I mean by that, right? Of course, there's rewarding aspects of it. You're helping unlock resources or helping deploy resources for social impact champions that are rooted in the community, that are proximate to communities most in need, that are really rocking with difficult problems and trying to explore and experiment with, with potential solutions. And that's where philanthropy, I think, performs its best, is where philanthropy can come adjacent to an innovator, can help them provide them with risk capital with some of that, that venture philanthropy capital for them to test out their idea, put them on the platform. And if it sticks, great, then we find other ways to fund it. We find ways to make it sustainable. And if it doesn't, then what can we learn? What can the ecosystem learn from that opportunity? So either way, either which way is a win-win for, for, for the ecosystem, for society as a whole. What I think makes it challenging, and I think also what makes it particularly challenging in one, corporate philanthropy, and two, for, for people of color or people from underrepresented backgrounds is the following. One, within the context of, of corporate philanthropy, you know, you're, you're not just delivering against values of impact and doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. That is a driver. But similarly, at the same time, adjacent to that, that driving value of impact, you also have to be living within the constraints of the entity, the corporation that you're representing, or the corporation that is providing the resourcing for for the work you're doing. So, in a context like Google.org, of course, we have to keep impact at the forefront, but also keep top of mind that the context in which we're operating, and that that of course offers some some trade-offs and limitations that we have to always navigate, which can be quite challenging. And the second component around proximity to marginalized groups. You know, I mentioned earlier that an immigrant from Venezuela, I grew up in Miami, but my family moved here when I was very, very young, when I was eight, and had the opportunity to grow up in a binational, bilingual context, and that, that, that's that been really formative. But again, that, that puts me in a level of marginalization, a level of grouping that, that that's unique, has strengths, and also some challenges. Similarly, I identify as a Latino, and was also, again, provides tons of strengths and tons of things that I'm really, really proud of. Also some challenges and barriers that we have to overcome. And I think when I bring that into the fold with the philanthropy that I get to lead and the philanthropy that I get to do on behalf of Google, you know, that, that creates, again, some, some challenges in that 
a lot of the groups I'm hoping to serve, a lot of the groups that the, the resourcing that I'm trying to unlock is to benefit groups that I personally identify with. And again, that's both rewarding and challenging when we can't get the right allocation or the right solution at play um, that can also be super taxing. So it's really hard, yeah. unlike a lot of jobs where you can almost kind of keep the work and the personal identity almost at arm's length. I think here it just begins to get muddled together. And it kind of, I think that both can be a tremendous blessing and a tremendous rewarding privilege and also a really, really heavy burden, a very, very heavy task to, to carry. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I think probably most people listening, but hopefully that will continue to reach more and more people who are new to this conversations like these. But in our world, there is a, a concept of lived experience. And that is a, a term that just like it exactly sounds is to say that people doing the work have lived experience more similar to the people that are benefiting or being helped or trying to be served. There's also credible messenger, which is a really neat term around the people that are speaking about the problem come from it versus those outside the problem coming, trying to come in and understand it and explain. And, you know, and, and it's, it's helpful to have more people care about things, but if they don't have any personal yeah. experience with it, we should probably stand back and I can speak for myself, stand back and let others and let others have the the stage, the mic and the opportunity. And that's one of the the goals I I'm, I have for Playful Podcasts is to lift up the voice of others and let these conversations. And listen, as a funder, completely agree with that sentiment. And as a funder, that's also a principle that we get to bring forward in how we execute the distribution of our resourcing. Right. I think. A big principle for us at Google.org is the belief that people most proximate to the problems mm -hmm. are also most proximate to the solutions. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we have a bias towards funding organizations who are operating in spaces that are being led by the communities they're hoping to serve, right? So if it's an organization that's hoping to serve the African-American community, it should be an organization that is led by and at least in large, in large portions be reflective of the community they're aiming to serve. Same thing in, in indigenous communities, women, same thing with Latinos, people with accessibility challenges, right? So I think there's a lot of how we keep that, that sentiment in the forefront of really centering the community we're trying to serve, and also elevating organizations that are bringing the solutions from within. Well, and it seems so obvious, and yet we know it's kind of the new thing, you know, in philanthropy, which just seems a little crazy, but at least it's now seems like it's getting its moment and it doesn't feel like it's a news cycle. It feels like for at least a lot of folks, it is a new paradigm that, that we will close the past on the old paradigm. Okay. We have to eat ice cream before we get too much further along. So folks, you may recall that we have the what's the scoop feature of the episode each week. And our ice cream today, it flew across country to Hector in Miami from Oakland. And for me, it flew from Oakland down to San Diego. The social entrepreneur that runs Kube Ice Cream based in Oakland is a wonderful woman. And it's a coconut-based ice cream. So Hector had mentioned that dairy-free would be preferred. So... And it's actually another guest of ours who's going to be on in a couple of weeks. He was the one that turned me on to this shop. And as I just described, they sell and send nationally. So I'm grabbing my ice cream out of my little cooler. Okay, Hector, tell us what we got. Oh, I'm ready. First of all, thank you for sending me a handful of different flavors <laughs> that I've now been enjoying. And 
We are down to Madagascar <laughs> vanilla bean oh, out of process of elimination because everything else is probably being consumed in my household by now. So we have our vanilla bean kube. Where, where's the front? Nice. There we go. Now, Look at that. I've got to say, I've resisted. And so I've got to ask you, how have the other flavors been? Oh, man. Amazing. Amazing. But I'm confident oh, this one is going to be the best. Okay. I'm waiting to. Okay. There it is. Oh, wow. Mmm. Mm. There's something so, about the coconut that just makes the flavors stand out. I think she even so says on the, on the website, she says full fat, which usually, you know, we're all like uh -huh. running away from the word fat. Yeah. Full, here it says, okay, Kube is a black woman owned vegan artisanal full fat coconut cream frozen dessert manufacturer. Locally produced coconut cream, no artificial colors, flavors, chemicals, etc. It is fantastic. I choose to believe that this is healthy fats only, healthy, only the best of fats. Mm. Right, Christine? Yes. So good. Okay. So the other part on what's the scoop, the play on words is what's the scoop on how you came to care. You hinted a little bit and alluded to your childhood. I'd love to know any moments, people, or influences that gave you this yeah. perspective about wanting to make a difference and help redress and balance. Listen, I think it's going to come as no surprise or little surprise to most folks that I'm going to attribute a majority of this to my upbringing and to my parents. I, like I mentioned earlier, grew up in an immigrant household to Venezuelan immigrants in the outskirts of Miami. And I have just learned so much mm -hmm. from my parents' example, from their experience, from their hustle, their grit, their passion, their optimism about life, about the world, about how to carry myself, about how to care. And that's really been what's centered my experience and my most, of my, most of my career, right? I think about their experience as first-generation immigrants and how that taught me about risk-taking. It taught me about tenacity as people of faith. They taught me about unapologetically staying true to your convictions and your beliefs yeah. as family-centered people as a family-centered couple they were caretakers and stewards not only of my nuclear family myself my two siblings but like good latinos of their extended family as well mm -hmm. and that didn't always mean blood relatives that means kind of the extended deals mm -hmm. ideas and the, the extended family and community right and they always really really balanced family life with the needs of the community whether that meant taking immigrant families into our home while they got up on their feet or working with home, the homeless the homeless individuals to help them rehabilitate or volunteering to feed needy, the, the, the needy people at nearby shelters. My parents really never turned down a chance to show grace to those in the margins. I really remember that being a deeply rooted value and lesson that I begrudgingly uptook as a kid, right? Mm -hmm. I remember as, as a young human, always having strangers in our house, always being forced to go on Thanksgiving or Christmas holidays to the local shelter or the local food bank. And I would do that pretty because I would think, oh, like, wouldn't it be nice to just be home and, you know, do the things that other normal families do? And fast forward to now, 
I'm like, man, what an invaluable life lesson my parents were teaching me back then, right? And those experiences have really shaped my worldview and have given me a sense of social justice and altruism, which really, truly continues to influence the work I do today at Google.org and in my personal life. I really appreciate you giving voice to the young person, teenager, because I can share with you my version of that. I walked on my first political campaign when I was four. I thought it was when I was eight, but turns out I was four. And my mom let me know that. So we were always doing those kinds of things, peace rallies. I was born in 64. So in 1968, my first campaign. And in 1972, we really got busy in that presidential election. But I remembered two things that I kind of begrudged in the moment. One was boycotting grapes. When I was a kid, we boycotted grapes as part of the farm worker protest. And, you know, I don't know if I'm, you know, 9, 10, 11, it's summer and I want grapes. Like all the other kids are having grapes. Yeah. And so that seems so silly, but it stuck with me. And here I am talking about it many decades later. It matters so much to me that we did that. And then we also sponsored a family of Vietnamese refugees who had come over, you know, after the fall of Saigon. And I remember going, I'm in Southern California, going up to Camp Pendleton to the refugee camp where they were brought with our station wagon and them all piling in and then finding them a place to live. And I hear it in my voice. It's Mm. very, yeah, it really matters that we did that. And what else might have I been doing on a summer afternoon, right? Right. And filling in. And then when we had to share, right, things of ours with them. You know, I think on a heart level, I always knew it was good to share. But, you know, you're a kid and you're like, initially give your toy away or your book or have somebody sleep in your bedroom. And it was so formative. And it I, is formative. I'm so grateful. And I and I thank you for making space for just that little crankiness that that, that kind of came along with it at that age. And the, the Listen, it's real. It's real. And I think it's important for people to know that at no point, like nobody here, <laughs> nobody here is earning sainthood, right? Like none of us were like willing participants in this work early on. And I think it's just, it's, it's a testament to the power of proximity and the power of perseverance in how the, these values and lessons on justice and belonging and equality can really transcend and transform people. And I'm thinking, Hector, back to the comment about lived experience, because my lived experience was of privilege if my parents hadn't engaged us in those opportunities, because then my lived experience started to include other people's stories. So I became broader focused. I looked, right, I could look up and see even even if I geographically hadn't traveled at that point, I was traveling through these interactions with other people and problems bigger than mine or not, not necessary. I wasn't proximate to them until my parents brought them into our home, like literally and figuratively. So thank you them. Yeah. Okay. So the buzzer went off. And so I think we should have another bottle of ice cream just because, you know, I don't know. I feel like it's hard to just let it sit here. And then I love the idea of having a a timer that reminds you to have ice cream. I think we should definitely do that more, incorporate that more into our daily lives. (laughs) And I don't know, we're we're in different time zones right now, but this is pretty early for ice cream. But, you know, I'm just going to pretend like it was yogurt. Oh, that sounds like breakfast. It's never too early. So how can we support things or something that you're doing? What would, what would you, would you guide us to go to google.org.org? How do you look it up? (laughs) And how do we find out what, how we support you in your efforts? 
Listen, three things. One, if you want to learn more about the work that we're advancing through google.org, go into our website, which is pretty straightforward, google.org, so org. It's the best way to find those resources, the best way to find the tools, and the best way to find the stories and the organizations that we're elevating and supporting. And the last two things that that I'll definitely want to, to elevate and mention here is, two, the community organizations that I have a chance to serve serve alongside of and, and sit on their boards, Hispanic Federation and Hispanics in Philanthropy and the Aspen Institute's Latino Society Program. Check them out. They are doing fantastic work around both frontline serving serving and supporting organizations that are serving communities that are being displaced, that are supporting immigrants in the in, in the border or immigrants throughout the country. They are supporting the Latino community with upper mobility, with whatever type of resourcing that, that is necessary to help the community stabilize and advance as, as a whole. So big kudos to, to each three of those organizations and please check them out. Please find ways to support them. They're, they're really doing transformative work. And the last one, the last reflection that I'll mention is almost an invitation for all of us to kind of lean in and celebrate and slow down and mm. kind of celebrate the, the joy of, of play. And mm. for me, it was really helpful to, to get the, the invitation to be on this podcast, Christine, because it also made me, forced me to reflect on the importance of slowing down and reminding myself of the importance of play and reminded me that to never be too much in a hurry because we'll always run past more than what we will be able to catch up with. And the relevance and then valuable traits that come from play like curiosity vulnerability proximity ability to think outside the box ability to innovate the ability to recharge that that are that are so important and you know that that also kind of reminded me of this framing that young pueblo has in in his his most recent book which is and i'll borrow this excerpt from from him which is in a society based on speed and productivity moving slowly is a radical act. And I just found that to be so, such a powerful, profound statement around how often we get caught up in the moving fast pace because of fear of falling behind or fear of not being able to to keep up with, with these expectations. And most of the time, these expectations are self-imposed. They're very much things that just exist up here in our minds, right? And we are partially motivated by what we think others are doing, what we believe others are doing, but that, that might not be the reality. And then collectively as a society, we create the spin wheel that's never ending and that's moving incredibly fast. And, yeah, I mean, and if we play kind of out loud and overtly, that kind of gives permission to others to do so. They know you're a serious guy doing important work and they saw you playing like, oh, yeah. right. Maybe that's allowed. Right. And maybe it's even essential. I, I, I love that. Oh, my God. This was so fun. There you go, right? This was yes. so fun. And we're in the midst yes, of our day, our change work. And this is part of it. This is not separate from that. This is part of that. Christine, thank you so much for helping us pause yeah. and helping us lean into this radical act of slowing down. I really appreciate that. Can't wait to see you again in person. Hope it is not too long. All right, my friend. I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Likewise. Bye. Hey, friends. This is the double scoop after our fantastic conversation with Hector Mujica from Google.org. Two things that I wanted to highlight and lift up. One was the quote he shared with us that perhaps become a mantra. 
which is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And really interesting to think about, afflict feels like a hard word when we think about afflicting others, but if the afflicting is to make the comfortable uncomfortable, which causes them to act and share some of their wealth, privilege, opportunities, ideas, inspiration, etc., with those who don't have as much and for whom some of that has been denied, let's go for it. I love that idea. And number two, we were talking about play around the world and he said that regardless of what the play looks like itself, he thought the outcome is most often the same, that it creates community and connection. He called it proximity, making people feel close and connected, a sense of belonging. And I love that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Those are the two key points I wanted to raise up. And thanks again for listening. What a great conversation. See y'all. Thank you for listening to the Playful Podcast with Christine Mitchie. If you want to stay playful as you tackle the world's problems and get all the scoop on today's tastiest ice cream, click to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can learn more about Christine on LinkedIn and her work with changemakers worldwide at impactfulinc.com. That's impactful with two L's, I-N-C.com.